Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. In the last half of the 19th century, conservative thought was clearly ascendant in Quebec, and one of its best tenors was Thomas Chappé. He was a lawyer, a journalist, a publisher, a writer, a politician, and a historian. He was born in 1858 in Saint-Denis-de-la-Bouteillerie, in the beautiful Kamouraska region northeast of Quebec City. He studied law at Laval University and quickly became principal secretary to the lieutenant governor of Quebec. He was known to the political class. His father was Jean-Charles Chappé, a father of Confederation, and Johnny MacDonald's first minister of agriculture. Thomas Chappé is now the subject of a study by Damien-Claude Bélanger, professor of history at the University of Ottawa and the chair of the history department there. His book, Thomas Chappé, Historien, was published by the University of Ottawa Press. We reached Professor Bélanger at his office. Professor Bélanger, welcome to Witness to Yesterday. Thank you for having me. You're the witness to yesterday in this podcast. Can you tell me what happened on January 10th, 1898? Uh, Thomas Chappé made an impassioned speech in uh, Quebec's Legislative Council uh, in opposition to an education reform that had been proposed, an education bill that had been uh, put forward by uh, the recently elected uh, provincial liberal government of Quebec. The government of Félix uh, Gabriel Marchand had wanted to create or recreate rather a Ministry of Education in Quebec. And uh, Chappé was fervently opposed to this, and he rose in the Legislative Council, which is the or was the upper house of uh, Quebec's legislature, uh, and and made a, a speech uh, where he denounced the entire uh, bill, uh, and indeed the bill was uh, or did die, if you will, or was killed, <laughs> or was voted down, to be more specific, uh, in the Legislative uh, Council sometime thereafter. To remind our readers, uh, who may be surprised by this, the Quebec government did have a Ministry of Education in 1867, but it was it was collapsed in the late 1870s, as I recall? Yes, the uh, at Confederation, Quebec, uh, like the other provinces, uh, had a Ministry of Education. But it was abolished uh, after a few years, and it was replaced by a coordinating body, uh, the uh, Council for Public Instruction, the Conseil de l'Instruction Publique, which had a Catholic and a Protestant uh, branch, and the Catholic branch was essentially controlled by the province's bishops. So the state had some oversight over education, but it was not in charge of education in Quebec. How does Thomas Chappé's famous speech then encapsulate Quebec conservatism? Well, it, it certainly encapsulates uh, an important aspect of, uh, of Quebec conservatism of the uh, late 19th and early 20th century, which you could also refer to as, as traditionalism, which is that the state should be uh, subordinate to the Roman Catholic Church, that the essence of uh, French-Canadian nationhood is uh, Catholicism, and that that the Roman Catholic Church should play a leading role within French-Canadian society, that it is, that the Catholic Church should be, if you will, sort of the spokesman for French Canada and its leader, uh, and that, that the, uh, the provincial state as legitimate as it is, is not at the center of the French-Canadian nation. Who was Thomas Chappé? 
Well, uh, as you said, Chappet was born in the uh, Kamouraska region of Quebec City, although I should point out it's actually southeast of Quebec City. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so it's on the south uh, shore of the St. Lawrence uh, in what is today and certainly was in the late 19th century a, a rural uh, part of Quebec. Um he was born into a, a very well-connected family politically, uh, a family that was very much part of the establishment of French Canada and, and especially of uh, the sort of greater Quebec City or eastern Quebec uh, region. So uh, on his mother's side, he is descendant uh, from a seigneurial family uh, that was also involved in, uh, in politics. On his father's side, as you mentioned, his, his father was a father of confederation. He comes also on his father's side from a family of merchants. So very much a part of the establishment. And uh, someone who, I mean, he trained to, to be a lawyer, but never really actively practiced law. And uh, somebody who very much embodies the political culture of uh, Eastern Quebec, of the Quebec City region. So conservative to be sure, but without some of the militancy that you see uh, in the conservative circles or the ultramontane circles, if you will, in Montreal and later in the nationalist circles uh, of Montreal. So he's very open to, to compromise politically, to working with not so much as political opponents as working with the English community in Quebec and uh, in the rest of Canada. Uh, and someone who uh, is, is one of the uh, most significant exponents of uh, what I like to refer to, and others as well, as uh, French-Canadian loyalism. What do you mean by that? I use the term loyalism to designate not a political ideology, but a political sensibility that emerges uh, after the British conquest, and that is not specifically tied to conservatism because uh, figures like uh, Wilfrid Laurier, uh, who was a liberal, uh, could also be identified as part of this uh, sensibility. Basically, uh, loyalists uh, share sort of three basic ideas. The first, I would say, is a sense that British political institutions are vastly superior to the political institutions of uh, both revolutionary France and also pre-revolutionary France, and also that they are superior to the political institutions of the United States. And another element, and this is tied to the first one, is the idea that the British conquest was fundamentally a good thing for Quebec, that it will eventually bring uh, political freedom or uh, free political institutions to Quebec, that it may have preserved us from the French Revolution. And a final element is a sense um, that British political figures, uh, British administrators, have tended to be favorable to uh, French-Canadian uh, rights. Now, I should point out that that's not necessarily a sense that British colonists here are favorable to it, but a sense that, you know, the royal family, the British governor, the British government tends to be favorable to, to French Canada. Now, we mentioned at the outset that um, Thomas Chappé was a legislative councillor. 
This is the upper house in the Quebec government that existed at the time. It was abolished in 1968. It lived a long life, which would lead us to think that he was a politician, but he's not really a politician, now was he? I mean, he ran for an election once uh, and was defeated, and yet somehow made a, a career as a politician. Well, he was absolutely a politician, but of course he... You know, Chappé's career was very much tied to unelected uh, political institutions. So he's appointed in the early 1890s to Quebec's Legislative Council. And, and, you know, Quebec was one of three provinces when it entered Confederation to have an upper house. Manitoba and Nova Scotia were the other two provinces. Manitoba abolished its uh, legislative council very quickly, and I believe Nova Scotia abolished its legislative council in the 1920s. Quebec had a legislative council for 100 years, and Chepet sat in that house for roughly half of its existence. Remarkable. So he runs in an election. He ran in the 1891 federal election, and he loses. But uh, not too long thereafter, he's appointed to the Legislative Council, and he will sit in the Legislative Council until his death in 1946. And then in very late 1919, he's also appointed to the Senate. So he's sitting in both houses. (laughs) Yes, he's one of the very, very rare Canadian political figures to have sat at the same time in both the uh, provincial legislature and in the federal uh, parliament. And so he's, he's absolutely a politician. It's just that he and he was involved in every possible election, federal and provincial, for about 50 years. But he was never elected a single time. He also serves in cabinet, but people, I think, will be surprised which cabinet he served in. Yeah, I mean, he, uh, again, because he, he's an interesting figure, he sat in the Legislative Council for over 50 years. And uh, so he kind of is the connection between the conservative regimes of the late 19th century and the Duplessis regime. Remarkable. (laughs) So he is, I believe, Minister of Mines and Colonization briefly in the late 1890s, in the Flynn government, I believe. And then he comes back, uh, back to cabinet in the 1930s, when the Union Nationale is elected in 1936. Uh, initially, he's the leader of the government in the Legislative Council, and then eventually he's appointed as a, a minister uh, without a portfolio, uh, which is very much in keeping with Chappé. Chappé, is, uh, he, he was in politics, but he never wanted to play a leading role in politics. This is not somebody who wanted to be the premier of Quebec. He wanted a seat around the table. He wanted to uh, be able to speak, but he doesn't necessarily want to be in charge. Right. Well, your book focuses on Chepe as a historian, so let's talk about that. Why did you think it was important to examine uh, Chepe as a historian? I wanted, firstly, to uh, to study Chepe because he was, as I said, one of the leading figures of French-Canadian loyalism. And I had initially wanted to write a biography of Chepe. There were two problems with that project. On, on the one hand, Chepe was involved in literally everything politically and and culturally and historiographically for over 50 years. He's one of Quebec's leading journalists in the late 19th century. He's one of its leading historians. He's one of its leading political figures. Biography of Chappé would have had to be monumental. And I also encountered a technical problem, which is that his niece, who was sort of his private secretary in his later years, was the one who arranged for his archives to be transferred to Laval University and to the government of Quebec. 
And in that process, she more or less purged his archive. It's very typical of Quebec politicians. And this is a, a burden we all share as uh, historians of Quebec. Uh, politicians have tended to burn their papers or their families burn their papers. And uh, I think as a result, Quebec history is very much impoverished uh, by that, uh, that lack of archives. And she was especially harsh, let's say, in, in her assorting with archives to do with politics and to his personal life. What was largely spared was his archives to do with history and historical writing. And I also believe that Chepe's most significant contribution to Quebec society was, in fact, his historical writing. So given that I wanted to study loyalism, given that loyalism rests in part on a certain reading of history and that Chepe is one of Quebec's leading historians, I decided that I could write a book about Chepe the historian, although his historical writing is very political. What kind of history was being written when Chepe decides to become a historian? He's not trained as a historian. No, none of Quebec's early historians are, are trained as historians. There was no way to study history in a professional sense in a, a, a Quebec university really before the 1940s. Right. So what prompted him to write history? Why, 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 why did he want to write history? So Chappé has, or had, shall I say, a, a, a longstanding interest in history. Uh, I, you know, the man kept everything. And I, you know, I looked at some of his schoolwork when he was in college. He's writing about history. He's passionate about history. He's got notes about how he's going to take his pocket money and buy this history book or that history book. Uh, so he's, he's very passionate at a young age about history, uh, about politics. He, he's a political historian. We can talk about that later. And uh, so he, he has this, this longstanding interest. But he's, he's essentially self-taught. I don't know that he would really have taken any history courses in university. It's pretty clear from his notes that uh, at Laval University, when he studies law, they are studying Roman law and, and legal history to some extent. But he, he has not studied history. Most history around 1900 in Quebec is written by amateurs who, uh, you know, people who are you know, in historical societies or numismatists and this and that. It's a history that is uh, not terribly professional. And sh when Chappé arrives on the scene, he, uh, he has a certain philosophy and idea of history that he's developed from reading, you know, the various historians of the 19th and early 20th century, especially the 19th century. And he comes at history from, I would say, an honest perspective. He's, he's very, you know, he doesn't have this sense of transcendent objectivity that you see in some historians in the 1960s and 70s. But he's, he's absolutely entirely self-taught when it comes to, to history. So he, what, what kind of history did he write then? He's a political figure. He comes from a political family. He comes from an elite family. Uh, and you see that absolutely reflected in his historical writing. So he writes a very famous eight-volume Histoire du Canada. And what you need to know about this history of Canada is, on the one hand, it's all about Quebec. <laughs> yes. There's some discussion of Upper Canada and, the, and, and so on and so forth, but it's only as it relates to Quebec. So it's a history of Canada that's entirely centered on Quebec. It's also entirely political, and political to the point that it's, it's almost administrative in nature. 
Chappé, as, as you mentioned earlier, only ever uh, actively presented himself in a single election, which he lost. He was involved in all sorts of elections. But by virtue of being in the legislative council, he didn't need to worry about getting reelected. And, you know, even though he was intensely partisan in his politics, he was also very administrative as, as a political figure. He doesn't need to worry about getting reelected. He doesn't need to worry about how something is going to play out in his riding. And so he's, he's very much in his politics, in the way he acts, he's almost like a senior public servant. And so he's always poring over budgets and this and that. And you see that reflected in his historical writing. He does obviously talk about elections and so on and so forth, but he, he's very interested in the legislative process. He's very interested in the administrative process. When he writes about New France, he's much more interested in the intendants, who are you know, almost the chief accountants of New France, than he is in the governor. So he's got this very, very, very administrative way of coming at uh, political history. And he also is very much only interested in elites. Now, he's writing in an era when, you know, most history is elitist, and yet he manages to stand out. <laughs> uh, ordinary people basically don't exist in his historical writing. Mm. There's almost no mention of women. Uh, I mean, Queen Victoria comes up now and then. He used the term les grandes familles. It's almost aristocratic in how he writes. Generals win battles. It's really, really, really very striking. Um, even though elitism is a hallmark of French-Canadian traditionalism in the late 19th and early 20th century, he still manages to stand out. He, I mean, I have to point out, he also marries into a, a noble family. He marries into the Langevin family, uh, Hector Langevin. Yeah, absolutely. So he's, not only is his father a uh, father of confederation, his father-in-law is as well. <laughs> he likes biography. He does. He thinks, uh, he believed that history, obviously that God plays a role in history. He's an extremely Catholic historian. But he also believes in the importance of les grandes figures or of individuals. So writing biographies for him, it's not just you know, something interesting to do. There is a, a philosophy behind the, the biography. And he also believes that the lives of great men, because they're always men, can serve as an example to, uh, to readers today. What would you consider his best hits? <laughs> Did he have big hits? You know, as a historian, Chappé kind of gets tossed by the wayside uh, beginning in the 1920s and 30s and was more or less forgotten. I mean, greatest hits. Uh, first of all, he wrote a, a column on history in La Presse for a little over a dozen years at the turn of the century. And this column actually played an important role in La Presse being by far the leading newspaper in uh, Quebec in uh, the early 20th century. It even publishes an edition for the French-speaking communities of New England. And these columns play quite a role in generating more popular interest in history. So I wouldn't put that as a greatest hit, but it's certainly important to the development of interest in history of a historical consciousness in French-speaking Canada. He publishes three important pieces of work. Uh, he publishes a biography of Jean Talon, which is uh, an important piece on Jean Talon. It, uh, it helps to, you know, 
boost Jean Talon's, uh, shall we say, role in the historiography. Before Chappet, Jean Talon was, you know, one of many intendants. He was, you know, mentioned. But after Chappet, Jean Talon really is, is on the map. And, and historiographically, it's an important book for uh, the study of, of New France. He publishes a biography of the Marquis de Montcal, mm-hmm. uh, which is, I would argue, probably his most solid piece of writing. However, because Quebec's historiography has tended to view Montcalm as a loser, which Chappet fervently disagreed with, but nevertheless, his book on Montcalm has not received possibly the attention it should have. Uh, I think he is probably right in having a, a higher estimate for, for uh, Montcalm's military abilities. And the book is also, from a literary standpoint, quite a, a good read, at least certain chapters. And uh, so it's probably his single most solid piece of work. His most influential piece of work was probably his Histoire du Canada. It covers the period running from 1760 to 1867. And it's a bit like the uh, Histoire de la province de Québec of Robert Humy in that it is impossibly dated or outdated. And yet there are, are facts and, and information in there that you won't find anywhere else, and partly because Chappé is interested in things that nobody before him or after him were very interested in, often issues that are very technical. You know, if you want to know exactly, you know, how things worked in uh, the Parliament of Lower Canada, Chappé is not a bad place to uh, to start. So we can still read him. I mean, there's still there's still uh, a point in reading Chappé if you want to know more about Jean Talon. I mean, I, I honestly, I don't know anybody who else who else has written a biography of Jean Talon. I don't I don't know of anyone else. Do you? I mean, is it? Uh, there is another book on Jean Talon, I believe. But to get back to your to your original question, I think Chappé is important to read, first of all, historiographically. I, I think we have the bad habit in Quebec. Every generation of historians wants to just toss out everything that came before it. Mm. And we don't have this sense of historiography that you, you find uh, much more readily in the United States, for instance. I, I think we need to, you know, I think students of history in French Canada should be reading, you know, all the major historians, dated or otherwise, to to get a sense of the development of the historiography, to get a sense of their discipline. And I also think that for for certain issues that, that Chappet made points that were worth considering. You know, I just mentioned about about Montcalm. I think the historiography of Montcalm is quite weak yeah. uh, to some yeah. extent. And, and it's not that Chappé can, you know, republishing Chappé's book will, will turn that around. But, you know, reading uh, Chappé for certain issues can be eye-opening. You know, in Quebec, it's, it's widely believed, for instance, that the patriots of 1837-38 are somehow responsible, it's never explained how, yes. responsible for the advent of responsible government 10 years later. Right. Chappé was very opposed to this idea. And he's very eloquent in explaining how it is complete nonsense. Uh, and sometimes, you know, when I hear this idea, I think, well, you know, there are a few p- choice pages <laughs> in Chappé's Cours d'Histoire du Canada that uh, might be worth reading even today. Do you assign Chappé in your courses? No. I mean, I, I don't teach historiography, 
because I would if I did, I think, including general historiography, because Chappé wrote a couple of articles that are quite interesting on the relationship between science and art, as he puts it, uh, within historiography, and on ideas of objectivity, and on what he would refer to as the moral duty of the historian. So I actually think that in a historiography course, Canadian or otherwise, Chappé is worth reading. Mm. I do assign to my students, you know, things about Chappé, uh, which which I, I think are relevant. Uh, I should point out, though, that the, the major course that I teach here at the University of Ottawa is a, a first-year course. And, uh, you know, in one semester, we cover all of Canadian history from 10,000 BC to, to Justin Trudeau. So there's not much time for Chappé. <laughs> but Chappé is, and I get this from your book, Chappé is an important conduit to understanding Quebec conservatism in his day, or Quebec loyalism, as you describe it. What was the strength of Quebec loyalist thinking at the turn of the century? I think if you look at its uh, its greatest legacy, at least in a positive sense, it would be to have fought uh, tooth and nail uh, for the uh, the preservation of French language rights. Hmm. At the time for bilingualism in Quebec, to, in the late 19th century, it's it's the ultramontane. And people like Chappé, because he's not quite, he's an ultramontane philosophically, but not necessarily politically. These are people who, uh, who absolutely fought for French-Canadian rights in Quebec, but also most notably in other provinces. The sort of Chappé-style conservatives in uh, the early to mid 20th century in Quebec are fervently opposed to constitutional centralization. And they will have had an impact on, you know, preventing that uh, from advancing too far. But of course, you know, I can see your next question is going to be what were <laughs> the negatives. Yes. <laughs> uh, at, at the same time, you know, the traditionalists or conservatives of Quebec will have defended and perpetuated a whole host of uh, inequalities. You know, Chappé is writing in an era, for instance, when historical writing in Quebec and, and elsewhere on uh, indigenous people is very negative, paternalistic at best. And yet Chappé manages again to stand out in that he, you know, his, his writing on indigenous people is, you know, in a bad era, below average, if you will. He has very little regard for indigenous people. Uh, you don't even see that paternalism that you might find in the writings of Father Grou uh, towards indigenous people. You don't find that in Chappé. He just ignores them. You know, even though he's, you know, he's got this providential sense of French Canada's mission, you know, he doesn't write a great deal about, uh, about missionaries, about missionary activity. Uh, he often, you know, argues that indigenous people were a threat to French Canada, either a military threat or a moral threat. Uh, so he actually stands out in that regard. In an era that has very little interest in uh, the role of women in history, Chappet still manages to stand out by basically completely ignoring half of the population. So is it, would it be fair to say that Chappet's view of history and his view of French Canada, of Quebec, is one of... Uh, sound Catholic perspective, uh, a perspective that is nationalistic in a certain degree in its fervor to preserve the French language, uh, one that sees events such as the the conquête, the, the conquest, or the rebellions of 1837, 1838 as 
as sideshows that really had a moderate or, or even a, a minor impact on the evolution, the organic evolution of French-Canadian society. Is, is that a fair statement of, of how Chappell would look at history? Uh, to some extent. I mean, Chappell's historical writing is profoundly conservative, but I would also describe it as counter-revolutionary. Oh, and that absolutely informs his uh, his historical writing. Chappet is uh, terrified of, you know, you might say the left, mm. if you will, uh, and that's understood in a very wide sense. Okay, so he regards the Marchand government, which is elected in 1897, as being basically revolutionary. Yes, well, a lot of people did think that. <laughs> he his view of the uh, the Laurier government uh, elected federally in 1896. He says. At some point, he's writing to his wife, and he says, ce sont des révolutionnaires, they're revolutionaries. He's constantly, you know, in, in his historical writing, in his political actions, he is constantly fearing subversion. And he, uh, you know, he believes that the British conquest preserved Canada from not just the French Revolution, but also from the American Revolution. He regards the 1837-38 rebellions as very significant because, as he sees them, they are attempted revolution. Right. Uh, he's, he's often noted in the historiography of uh, the rebellions as being one of the few historians, uh, at least until recently, to have fully grasped the revolutionary intent of the rebellions. So he's, revolution is constantly threatening French Canada. Uh, and one of the reasons that he's a loyalist is that the British conquest will have ensured, a, if you will, a royalist stability or a monarchical stability in, uh, in Canada. That did allow for the preservation of the French language and of a Catholic society. Yes, absolutely. But the preservation of the French language and of Catholicism is all tied up in the preservation of a conservative social order for him. He died in 1946. He was 88 years old. Is there merit in reading him again? I, I, I think absolutely. Uh, to, to understand Quebec historiography, to understand a certain nationalism and a certain conservatism, which was very influential in its day. You know, there's a lot of talk about Gru, but Chappé in his day was very, very influential as well. Uh, and I think for certain points of history, absolutely, Chappé remains, uh, still has something to say about certain aspects of uh, Canadian history. That's wonderful. Damien-Claude Bélanger, thanks for being my guest today. Thank you for having me. That was Damien-Claude Bélanger, professor of history at the University of Ottawa and the chair of the history department at that institution. His book, Thomas Chappé, Historien, was published by the University of Ottawa Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the society does, including its publications, its blogs, and more about these podcasts. There's a place to become a member and a sustainer of the society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's past. If you like this stuff, please let people know by using whatever social media you use. It would help spread the message, and we'd be really proud of your support. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. My name is Patrice Dutille. This interview was recorded in the Allen Slate Radio Institute, Ryerson University on March 4th, 2020, and produced by Jessica Schmidt. 
Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time.